Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Bethany Hall, an MTSU alumna who works for the Consolidated Utility District of Rutherford County, is putting her expertise to use on a special project. She's in Hawaii working with the federal government's Department of POWMIA Accounting Agency to help locate battlefields and remains of U.S. servicemen in Asia. Her status as an FAA certified drone pilot and her geographic information mapping experience will all come in handy. We'll speak to Bethany after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU will mark September 11th by helping save lives in a red, white, and true blue fashion again this year, encouraging both the campus and community to join the annual Battle of the Branches Blood Drive, set for Thursday, September 2nd. The Blood Drive, co-sponsored by the Charlie and Hazel Daniels Veterans and Military Family Center at MTSU, the MTSU Red Cross Club, and the Department of Health and Human Performance, is set from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. September 2nd in room 322 of the KUC, located at 1524 Military Memorial Drive in the Central section of campus. MTSU's Lana Seavers, Dean Emerita of the College of Education, devoted her almost half-century-long career to education. In recognition of her service to children and to the community, the United Way of Rutherford and Cannon Counties announced that Seavers will receive the Linda Gilbert Advocate of the Year Award. The award will be presented August 30th at the local United Way's annual community celebration at the Embassy Suites in Murfreesboro. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. And now, from Oahu, welcome, Bethany Hall. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jenna, for having me. How did this opportunity come your way? Years ago, while I was doing a research project, part of a graduate program with MTSU's history program, I, I stumbled across an interview with a World War II veteran. So... I went to a conference and I met a gentleman that did stuff with the POWMIA accounting agency. At the time, it was called JPAC. And from there, I went home and told my husband, I think that's really where I want to focus my expertise one day. And so that, that started, me, uh, started me going down a path to finish at MTSU. I did the work in public history, geosciences, and then in the Masters of Liberal Arts. And it's just kind of stuck with me. And last April... I found a chance. Did you have to fill out an application form to get a special grant? What was the process? Um, I found an opportunity through Oak Ridge Institute of Science and Education. And what they do, they look for scholars to go and assist other agencies within the federal government. So it's kind of like I'm being loaned out on a research grant from CUD to go help the DPAA. So um, I applied and I was surprised when they called because normally they're looking for people with um, with doctorate degrees. And this agency called and said, hey, you've done stuff with GIS and we need help. Would you be willing to come to Oahu for a year to do that? And I kind of went, where? <laughs> <laughs> and you thought that they would go after some PhDs that were working at MIT or someplace else or maybe the, you know, War College or someplace like that. Uh, instead, they came to you. Yes. Yeah. I was, I was shocked, honestly. Uh, it, it was, I feel like it's a once in a lifetime opportunity 
to kind of to go and work with this agency. It's been an amazing adventure just to get here during a pandemic to be able to work. I have to go onto the base two days a week and support them. So my time is split between two different recovery teams. And what exactly does your Hawaii job entail? Well, a lot of it entails uh, looking through old aerial imagery, historic records, working with an archaeologist, and tying all this together with the geographers there to kind of put it into a mapping software where we can kind of go and say, the record points to this. We have evidence that the crash site, say if it was a, an airplane or a helicopter crash, we think it's in this area. And the archaeology and the eyewitness accounts support going and doing an investigation. So we kind of come up with the with the maps to send the search team and say, we think this site is in this location. Can you guys go poke around in the dirt and try to find it? And so you're looking at sites in Asia, World War II, Korea, uh, Vietnam, those wars, and uh, sites in the former French Indochina, as well as Korea, and basically in, in South Asia. Why do so many service members' remains continue to be undiscovered after all this time? Well, part of it's the terrain. The geography is just so rugged. Uh, one of the cases we were looking at recently involved in, in mid-air crash between two aircrafts over the Vietnam-Laos border. So those type of incidents make it kind of hard to recover remains. But if we can pinpoint to where that debris may have fell, maybe we can find something, either that of the aircraft or remains if, if they still exist. I imagine the debris field from an incident like that would be really widespread. Yes. And so that's one of the reasons why we're using the historical documents, um, aerial imagery that was declassified to kind of go in and look. And also we're putting together the old maps and they're all in different, what in geographer terms, datums and, ge and geographic um, coordinate systems. So a lot of times we're having to take information that was captured, you know, 40, 50 to 75, 80 years ago and overlay it in modern, you know, geography now trying to figure out what, where, where that event took place with, with the information that we have. So it's, it's detective work, a lot of it. Do you have the cooperation of the various foreign governments involved? We do. The, we actually do have a, a working relationship with the Vietnamese government. I, I think they've told me they work with, with uh, the folks from Laos and Cambodia as well. And they hire locals to kind of go out into the remote areas to kind of help us do these searches. And so there'll be a team from the U.S. that goes and assists the uh, boots on the ground efforts in those countries. Are you or will you be using drones in your work? Right now, I've told I've had I have to kind of wait because Vietnam has limited airspace for that. And they prefer if you're going to use drones, this is what I've been told, that they would fly them. And it's a but, communist country, so they kind of keep things under wraps as well. Is, is it a little easier with Japan and Korea? South Korea, I, I should say. I think so. I'm not really quite aware how much drone activity they've done there. I know there was a group that just came back two months ago from South Korea doing some recovery work. Do you have any sort of a ballpark estimate on how many U.S. service members' remains have yet to be found? I don't, but when I look at the map and the data, it's quite a few. 
But just what you've looked at so far tells you that there, there are, there's still a rather substantial number of service members remains that have yet to be sent back to the U.S. Yes. Yeah, and there were many lost during World War II, and that seems to be the bulk of the remain cases that they're working. And that involves uh, a certain sense of urgency because our World War II vets, the ones who survived, are dying quite rapidly, those who are uh, still alive or in their 80s and 90s, and their loved ones are also, the ones that are closest to them are also getting up in years, and uh, there's, those families would like to have some closure after all these decades. Yes, and that's been one of the biggest priorities of the agency that they've told me about recently is they've been pushing to try to locate as many World War II remains as they can because the genetic pool for these people is narrowing to identify them. We'll take a break here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte Gross, WISE advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Bethany Hall, and she's currently working in Hawaii with the Department of POWMIA Accounting Agency to help locate battlefields and the remains of U.S. servicemen. What attracted you to uh, GIS and related technologies in the first place? Well, I kind of fell into it by accident. I had a friend of mine that introduced me to GIS a little over 20 years ago. I was working with Murfreesboro Electric Department as a engineer assistant going out, inspecting services, and then coming back in and actually drawing them on a computer CAD system. So he came to me and said, hey, there's a better way to map poles and transformers. Do you want to see how it works? So I went and checked it out, and I was, I was smitten. I mean, GIS let me let the technical side of my brain dance and the artistic side of my brain interact with that as well. So it's, it was like this eye-opening event. And I said, tell me more, and I want to do this. It's interdisciplinary, uh, what you do. There's a combination of humanities and science uh, applied here. Uh, And some people, I'm one of these people, I am stronger in humanities than I am in math and science. Have you always been one of these folks who is equally adept at either end of the academic scale there? No, I, I'm, math is a challenge for me. If, if I could read it like I read letters, I would be a, so much more better at the statistical side of GIS, but that's not where my gift is. My gift is like putting the information together. So it's like I can pull the visual data and link it with that tabular data and just kind of make it work in a way that's visually pleasing. And also you can pull information from it quickly. 
So you're going to create this portal where you and your colleagues can put all of this information in an understandable format, or at least one that is understandable to you and your fellow professionals uh, for your purposes. Does that mean a website or either inter or intra website, or what exactly is this portal going to look like as you envision it? Well, our vision for the portal is three different pieces. Right now, a lot of the folks at at DPAA, we work in what we call data silos. So everybody kind of does their own thing on their own computer. You have the historians working on a project, the archaeologists are working on a project, and then the GIS folks are helping support those. Well, what we're trying to do with the portal piece is to take all those data silos and consolidate them. And then on top of that, we have database specialists, and they're combing through thousands of records, putting this information in for the historians in for the archaeologists, in for the GIS folks. So we're going to take that information as part two and bring that together as well. So we're kind of taking all these different parts and putting them together. And then in the end, the final piece is going to be operational dashboards for the management team so they can see what's going on with the field crews. That'll help them anticipate any issues that they see um, coming up in the field. It'll help them navigate any diplomatic changes that need to happen of information for the historians and the archaeologists, they, they'll get that back from the field. Now it comes back in written reports, has to be translated and then sent back to the historians. So there may be a couple of months gap between the data, even though the field teams do daily situational reports. How thorough were the members of our armed forces at recording their battles and the exact locations where they fought and such. After the battle, a lot of times the officers and the men would would write down detailed accounts. These these after action reports have to be filed. Different officers review those records and that kind of goes into this whole case file that they build. So they use the operational reports. They use the overall reports coming from the higher chain of commands. And then they use the geography uh, the maps that were created at the time, too. And so we have to take all that, which are pretty much square pegs, it feels like, and then kind of put them in these round holes and work our way through problems. The map making in and of itself, cartography has changed so much with the advancement of digital technology from then to now. You're transferring a lot from uh, an, an analog format to a digital format, and you have to do that don't you, before you can proceed with understanding further what exactly took place there. Yes. And that was one of the first things that they've been showing me since I've arrived is that we can have up to a 500 meter shift just in one country alone because of the different coordinate systems used to create the maps during the conflict opposed to what we're using now. And so we translate a lot of coordinates, latitude, longitude to the military grid reference system. Uh, There's a guy in our office that's really specialized in that. So you'll take something to him and he can sit there and he can kind of go through it and say, yeah, you're going to have to shift this to the northeast 500 meters to kind of get in the ballpark. And then we determine how big is the ballpark. The American military, of course, was raised on miles and the countries that were previously owned and occupied by the Europeans are using kilometers, right? Yes. It's that kind of a, tr- that's one of the types of transitions you're talking about. Yes. And another thing we have to do is, you know, converting miles to kilometers and meters. And a lot of the records do record 
those differences. I, I mean, from the records I'm seeing, I, I'm astounded by the amount of information that's there that the guys captured. So you do have a sort of a wealth of material to to go through. It's uh, do you feel like you're ever Atlas holding up the world because there's so much of it to go through? I do at times. Sometimes you'll read through a report that's 60 pages long to get actually one or two coordinates to, to calculate and to convert. <laughs> You're on the island of Oahu. Isn't it hard to keep your mind on your work with all the recreational opportunities available to you? Yes. Uh, that's been one of my biggest struggles so far is because I'm working at home and I'm in such a beautiful area. Some days I just have to keep the curtain closed because I'll just start daydreaming outside. <laughs> then I'm like, I think I need to go, you know, take swim a, I need to do some ex- exercise so I'll go out and swim laps in the pool. <laughs> what did you say to your husband when you took this proposal to him? Hey honey, let's go to Hawaii. Oh yeah, right. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, he kind of went, "Oh, they want you to go out to an island?" <laughs> he was a little shocked. He he doesn't mind visiting islands for a vacation, and I've actually taken him to several as part of my MTSU study abroads. But he's like, I don't know if I want to live on an island. Uh, if you think about it, Oahu's a little bit bigger than Rutherford County as far as square miles. And you literally can drive around the island in just about a day. <laughs> so, and you can't go anywhere. So if you wanted to leave, you have to take, get on an airplane or a boat to go someplace else. But honey, so, it is the United States. <laughs> right. And that's what I told him. I said, it's not like we're going to Peleliu or to, you know, Yap or some other place that's really far away and takes 36 hours to get there by plane. It's just a, you know, from Nashville, it's with all the stops you have to make. It's, it's about 12 hour plane ride. And then you get to be here and I'm literally probably less than a half a mile from a beach in any direction. So. How far are you from the actual Hickam base, Pearl Harbor? I'm about a mile and a half from the base. So I live in an area known as Salt Lake, which is sits in the middle of the island and it's just north of Pearl Harbor. So I can actually look at my high-rise building and see the entrance to Pearl Harbor. Is that where you go on the days that you do go into the office instead of working from home? Yes, I go in and um, I'm. we're on the back side of the airfield. So our building sits not too far from the end of the runway for both the commercial aviation that happens and the military aviation. So it's not uncommon to be sitting outside eating a sandwich at lunch break and see, you know, two F-22s scream overhead. (laughs) Did your husband have to make any special arrangements for his job to accompany you? Well, he's came out here on vacation and he just recently returned home. So we, we still have a house and uh, several pets. So he's at home taking care of the pets and he comes out. Hopefully he's been out here one time already, stayed for almost two and a half weeks. And his job did allow him to take some extra time to do that. And we're hoping he'll get to come back out again, maybe in the fall. What does he do? He's with Rutherford County Office of Information Technology. So he's a computer specialist with them. And we have two, two daughters, one's 20 and one's 14. And they're here with me now. They're spending the summer with their mom soaking up the island life. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a lot of shopping on Oahu in Honolulu. So my youngest one says, Mom, can we go to the mall? And I'm like, come all this way to island to go to a mall? But... <laughs> But you can't turn down stores like Bloomingdale's and Saks Fifth Avenue. I mean, I can't afford anything in them, but I like to window shop. <laughs> Time for another break. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. 
Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle East Center at MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Bethany Hall. She has a master's degree from MTSU. She's also an FAA certified drone pilot and an expert in geographic information mapping, all of which she's putting to use with the Department of POW MIA Accounting Agency in Hawaii to help locate battlefields and the remains of missing U.S. servicemen from various conflicts. What was your employer's reaction when you requested a leave of absence from May 2021 to January 2022? You know, there are a lot of bosses who'd say, go ahead, but your job might not be here for you when you get back. Yes, uh, that was my initial fear. And I took the initial contract that they sent me to my supervisor and I said, look, these folks have asked me to come out. It's part of a grant proposal. It's not really a job to replace this one. It's something I've always wanted to do. You would look over this with me and see if CUD would be willing to grant a leave of absence. And uh, we looked over it together, and he, he took it to the general manager, explained it, and they kind of said, yeah, this sounds like a great research opportunity. And the information I'm learning will come back to CUD in such a huge windfall. We're, we're going to be able to do more with our portal because I'm being taught how to create this portal from the beginning and bring all the data together. So we're hoping everything that I'm learning here on the island is going to translate well back in the States, which I think it will. We do a lot of stuff with, with mobile devices and the DPAA. They're trying to move into a, a more mobile friendly so they can do field operations and teach guys in other countries in different languages how to use the mobile data and how to collect it for us. So we can kind of bridge that gap between the paper copies and the digital set that we're creating. In addition to the benefit uh, that will accrue to your employer, it's also refreshing to see an employer that doesn't just bloviate about supporting the troops because it's politically correct to do so, but actually does something that shows a tangible support to military and to military families like this. Yes. The thing I've learned with being with the DPAA is when you raise your hand and you, you swear that oath of allegiance to the military, we also take an oath to bring those people home. So it kind of chokes me up a little bit. But CUD is really supportive of that. We have several members of our team that are former military, and it means all the world to bring these folks home because, you know, those families are waiting. And my family was a family that was waiting for several years. We didn't know what happened to a family member. But through some historical research, I tracked him down. So hey, You did a study abroad trip to Peleliu and... Your great uncle John, with your grandmother's brother, had fought 
at Peleliu, did you know that there was that family connection before you went on that study abroad trip? I didn't right before. I only learned about it just a, a little bit before we went on the trip. My grandmother, before she passed away, asked me to figure out what her brothers did in the war. And I had no idea. She had two brothers that served in the armed forces during World War II. And one of them didn't come home. I knew she had a living brother and a living sister. And they never spoke of World War II. It was so painful on the family. It was taboo. So when I started looking all this up, what she asked me to find, I got his records. She passed away two weeks before they came in the mail, and it started me on a path, and I had to figure out where these places were. So when MTSU said, we're going to Peleliu, you want to go? And I was like, yes, because, you know, I had a family. It was, it was so exciting. I had a family member step foot here, and I wanted to trace his path through the Pacific. And knowing that, you know, he was killed during the war, but we didn't know where. And then those records arrived and found out he was killed on Okinawa. So that's the last step of that journey is I'm going to have to go to Okinawa. You're, uh, you're closer than you were before. So you're, you're, <laughs> you're going to be able to arrange that trip, aren't you? Well, I'm going to try to. I, I'm hoping to. The work here at the DPAA is there's so much of it to do. I've, I feel bad to, to take a trip in the middle of it and to go to Okinawa, but I want to. So we keep looking at maybe possibilities of doing that. Maybe you can combine it with work. I've asked about that. I said, do you have anybody going to Okinawa? And they said, our hot butter research is pretty much Vietnam, Laos, and Korea right now. And I said, well, can you make an exception? When do you uh, intend to get back into the swing of things as an adjunct professor at MTSU? I'm hoping if I return in the spring, maybe I could start again in the summer and the following fall. So I do miss teaching the kids and trying to teach from um, Zoom meetings and stuff online wasn't the same. I miss their smiling faces. I understand you'd like to develop a course at MTSU that combines history, geography, and GIS. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I've actually brought it up to my department chair. We're in the Global Studies Department. So we've talked several times about bringing together a course that kind of walks you through how to kind of do the, the research that would require to create the data and how you can use that to bridge it in GIS to kind of help enhance any type of subject that you're studying, especially with global studies and human geography. We see kids from all disciplines to come in and take a geography class. And the more you know about the place you're studying, it, the better it is to kind of tie all this together because you can't have history without a place and you can't have place without a, without a story. Well, as you know, that can be a bureaucratic and somewhat cumbersome process. So we won't be seeing it immediately, but we hope to be seeing it eventually when you dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And in the meantime, uh, we wish you safe and uh, productive work there in uh, attempting to bring some closure to these families who have lived with questions for so long about the fate of their loved ones. Bethany Hall, thank you for being our guest on MTSU on the record. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERRA, 
gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. Terra wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to Terra, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. New MTSU Engineering Technology Department Chair Ken Curry inherits programs featuring mechatronics engineering, robotics, and more as students and faculty await a new building scheduled to open in 2024. One of the things we want to do is make sure that we keep the same strengths of this hands-on students and graduates that are going to be making an impact in industries uh, where they go to work. Uh, We want to enhance our uh, relationships with the uh, advisory committee members and try to be more inclusive of uh, local industries because I think the important thing about uh, academia, especially our department, is uh, we can have a significant impact on uh, economic development in the region and in this area. And I think that that's, uh, that's part of our mission. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.